0: That absolutely terrified me. What if they don't believe in our business model? But then when I joined the next pitch, I just sat down in the call and I said, I believe that we will make better games by treating game developers better.
1: Welcome back to Building Better Games where we help leaders create better video games through holistic leadership. As we've talked about on the cast before, starting a new games company is fraught with risk, and even more so if you're going off the beaten path. What does it mean if you're also trying to build a new and compelling vision for game developers everywhere? Today, we're gonna dig into the following questions. What is the myth of the dream job in game development, and why is it at the center of so many of our experiences as game developers? Why would you choose to create the right environment rather than the right game? What is the concept of a risk budget and why is it so important for creativity and great products? We're gonna explore all of this and more and our good friend Josiah's journey as an entrepreneur and CEO. He's here with us today and he's the founder and CEO of Sprocket Games. Sprocket just raised 5 million in financing for a new game and a new vision for Game Studios. We're gonna go deep on exactly what the heck that means. Josiah, thanks for joining us, man. we're really excited to dig into this with you.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. So
1: Josiah, talk to us a little bit about what the heck's been going on. I know you've had a crazy year and it's all culminated in this point where I'm reading news articles about you.
0: Yeah, it's been a journey. I was hopeful that I would be able to get back into the games industry. Like I've been at Google for a couple of years and as great as Google is, like it is a really great company to work for. It wasn't exactly a fit for me. and so. I was talking to as many people as I could and trying to figure out where I might fit in. I reached out to a couple of like ex Riot startups. I was like, maybe I could come in and like actually make an impact on a company and try to set their culture in a way that I thought was was conducive to good game development. Maybe I could build some of that technology foundation that set the company up for success. Like I've been at Riot, which was largely built on the fly. Like it was. Much of the engineering rigor that Riot ultimately came to have was built far after the fact and with great difficulty and expense. Maybe with everything that I've learned, we could build things right the first time and build a better platform for people to make games. And so I was like, all right, well, maybe I should join a startup. And so I was talking to a couple of different startups, and I had very specific ideas of what I was looking for. And in some cases, that clashed in the interviews where... Like I would say, hey, this is my ideas of how to build a stable technology foundation because video games are software, so we should treat it as such. And a lot of times they'd be like, well, we're not ready for that. Maybe when the game is, is successful, we can go back and build that infrastructure. And I felt that that was backwards. And one of the people that I was talking to at the time was my good friend Nick Titley. As I expressed all of the things that I dreamed about making a good game studio, many of them resonated with Nick. And so eventually the, the conversation changed from, here you be a sounding board for all of the ideas that I have. What if we took these ideas and turned them into a company? Now, we're a couple of engineers, so what kind of a company does do engineers make? They make tools companies that then they sell to game studios, and then we can be games industry adjacent. Um, so we kicked around ideas for that for a while, but we couldn't kick the idea that both of us actually really wanted to make games and in fact, making technology without a game as a target for that technology can be very dangerous. Like you could just build technology for technology's sake and you don't ever actually build anything useful. And so we're like, even if we do want to build better tools, we really should build them in service of a game. And if we're going to be a game studio, we can't just have two engineers. We need a game designer to, to run this game and to hold the vision for this game. And the first person on our list was Joe Greylock. And our optimism for getting them to leave Riot was, was low. They seemed to be doing really well, but uh, maybe Joe knew somebody. And so we just started bouncing ideas off of Joe and say, hey, like this is what we're trying to do. Is this something you're interested in? And initially, we got the reaction we expected. Fast forward six or eight months of conversation. Uh, we eventually convinced Joe to join the team, and that was the initial three. We started putting together pitch decks and Reaching out to VCs. We were also just talking to everybody who would listen. And one of those people was was our friend Raina Sweet, who ultimately joined us as our fourth co-founder. And we continued pitching and landed Bitcraft as our lead investor. And here we are.
1: A fully funded game studio. And we're building away. So you're in a place where you're like, we've got some good ideas. We have no idea what we're doing, though. Yeah. What were those bumps in the road? It's like I could imagine, for example, giving my first pitch and all of the things that would be going through my head in that situation, what, what were those things for you?
0: Um, So the biggest challenge is understanding what VCs are looking for, like coming from mostly an IC background where like the product that I'm working on has requirements and I satisfy those requirements. And then they say, good job. uh, You get promoted. There's a pretty understandable path to like validating whether I'm doing a good job or not. When I'm Getting ready to pitch VCs, I'm putting together a pitch deck and I have no idea what my audience is going to think about it. I don't know if I've checked all the boxes that they're going to be looking for. And I don't know how to convey that I am a legitimate investment and I'm going to do well with the money that they give me.
1: Hmm. There's a particular point in your journey that you've reflected to me as we've talked. And that to me was just, it blew my mind a little bit. And it was what you were saying about leading with culture and having a vision for a better studio and a vision for a better environment for game developers. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about how you landed in that place where that light bulb came on and you were like this is it this is the thing that's important yeah. to me and and how your interaction with VCs went when you started to shift that narrative.
0: Yeah, that's an important part of the story. So, the way that I originally approached pitching VCs, I had this Sort of fuzzy idea that VCs are looking for something specific, and they're like just trying to run down a a list of check boxes that that are like, well, if we satisfy all of these conditions, then we should invest in that in that company. And I thought I thought VCs were a lot more sort of cold and unfeeling than than they actually really are. And so I was. I would focus on all of the mechanics of the company, like what does the business model look like and how are we going to acquire players and what's our go-to-market strategy and all of those things are important. I was worried that VCs would view all of the culture stuff that I wanted to do as a waste of time, like, oh yeah, sit around the campfire and just, you can talk about all the sweet and kind things that you want to do, but really we're here to make money and you need to prove to me that that's what you're going to be doing. Because I was so focused on the formula of what I imagined that VCs think that a successful game studio looks like, I was focused on checking boxes on, on a VCs checklist. And so it was, it was, it was very rigid. It was, it was inauthentic, and it, that wasn't why I was there. And so at a certain point, like we'd just gone through another pitch, and sometimes we do two or three pitches in a day. Like, it was quite a stressful and exhausting time period. We were reviewing the feedback from from one of the pitches, and I think it was Nick who just straight up said, like, what can I do to get you off the script? Because you're so much more inspiring when you're just speaking from the heart and talking about the things that we want to do with this studio. What if we just did that in the pitch? And that absolutely terrified me because I was like, well, what if they don't believe in our business model? And Nick and Joe convinced me to give it a shot. And so I read the scripts 200 times to make sure that I knew it because I was still convinced that I needed to check all those boxes. But then when I joined the next pitch, I didn't bring up the slides and I just sat down in the call and I said, I believe that we will make better games by treating game developers better. Game development should be a dream job but it's not and right there in the pitch i started talking about how important psychological safety is and how like each individual has a risk budget and once you're tapped out you stop doing creative work and sprocket games is going to win because we recognize that and because we build that really stable platform so that people can do their best creative work and the game that we produce will be so much better because we built a better environment and this pitch got significantly better feedback. Like, it's not a secret that the games industry is a difficult place to work. And everybody that we talked to from there forward resonated so much more strongly with what this studio was going to be. And we immediately started landing pitches. And very soon after, we got a term sheet. And I sometimes we didn't even talk about the game. There were pitches where all I did was talk about the studio and how making a better culture that's built correctly from the very beginning is going to make better games. And then giving an amazing technology foundation so that we can supercharge the creative output of each individual. Like that was what resonated. And then on follow-up calls and in the future, they, they would then say, oh, by the way, we should talk about the business model. And oh, by the way, we should make sure that you actually are checking all the boxes because we believe in your vision. So that that worked a lot better. Hmm. That's so awesome. I think if you're the
1: kind of leader who talks about these things often, the cynical response that you often get is, that's not practical. You talk about these things, people hear this and they just go, I don't care about that. It's too abstract. It's not practical. When are we going to get to work? Yeah. Show me the project plan, show me the Gantt chart, show me the burn rate. Like, it's so exciting to hear that sometimes it lands because, you know, for us, at least, it it represents a a better way of thinking, a more thoughtful approach.
2: Yeah. You talked about coming at this from an engineering angle. I am curious about what were the innovations in engineering that you saw as important as people are developing games?
0: Yeah, and the, the interesting thing is a lot of the technology ideas that I had ultimately connect with some of the culture ideas that I have. So one of the biggest challenges that I had at Riot was when I would, I would work with certain groups on product teams that I felt often were overlooked and not supported well enough. Uh, one, one specific is QA like where they're a very necessary and important part of the job. And I often felt like the tools they were given to do their jobs were just insufficient. The response from management was to add more QA people. And so you have a legion of QA people clicking buttons, making sure that everything works. And as an engineer, I look at that and I say, that's not long-term sustainable. That's not scalable. And like people that make entry-level QA income living in Southern California, that's a tough life. You have Mm -hmm. probably four roommates and you're at work working on games, but like you're sort of the last line of defense for every big release. And so your job is mission critical and you've got to be there for everything. But then you're not supported as well because it's almost treated as like a commodity position where it's like, well, as long as we just have people in seats, they will get the job done. And from an engineering perspective, I'm like, well, if I can build better tools So that QA can do their job more effectively. If I automate more things so that QA can focus on the things that humans are good at, not that computers could do for us, then the QA people have a better life because they're doing more interesting and thoughtful work of is the game fun or is this is this feature impactful or does this feel right? Something that automation and computers can't do well. And then also, if we don't have to hire legions of them, maybe we can afford to pay them more. And then maybe living in Southern California is not such a difficult task.
1: I hear you say that. And I think about like the, the, the collective decisions in our industry that led us to that place where those things are true. And then I think this is also what you're pointing to is like, what if we change what it means to be QA? What if QA is a higher order function? Mm-hmm. What if it's more strategic? What if it's more about managing quality and embedding in the team and like being A leader in that sense and not just smashing your face against the keyboard to make sure that the release has a couple fewer bugs. It's interesting that you note that part of changing that is changing the way we think about QA and valuing that more, which is super cool.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that is often more clear to engineers than it is to people with other backgrounds is how investment in tools amortizes over the long term. Mm -hmm. And so if I build a tool that saves somebody three hours a week and I built it early in the project's life cycle, that's a lot more weeks that I'm saving those three hours every week over the course of a four or five year project. It's compounding interest. Exactly. If you build that exact same tool six months before you release the game, well, that's like four years of value that you've missed. And the, the reason people have trouble committing to that is because the cost of the original development of that tool is very high. And so getting buy-in that it's worth it is difficult. And if you haven't been through a complete release cycle where you saw the impact of not having those tools, you're just like, why would I spend you know, two engineering months building this other tool mm-hmm. when we could just hire three QA people to do the job manually?
1: Yeah. And I think there's another key thing too to which even further's your point which is that what it might be 2 months to set up that tool from day 1 but if you wait 4 years it might be 6 months or
0: also true, yeah,
1: 8 months to set up that same tool because now you have to navigate around all of the Technological limitations that you yeah. yourself and your team have created over that four-year period, and that that so so we, weirdly, as you start to think about it more and more deeply, that I like how you put it, that amortized sort of function actually is even more incredibly worthwhile to think about, um, and it, and it's so crazy because one of the things I wanted to ask you is point blank. You see, you've see, You went and you interviewed at some of these studios, and you kept seeing some of these themes coming up. Like, and and like you said, it is similar to culture in that I view culture as like being the ultimate example of that concept. Actually, like one of the things we tell leaders is like, hey, if you set up a, a strong and understood and well aligned upon cultural paradigm from square one, then you can. Imagine that every single person that works at your company has an increased efficacy in their decision making. So, in whenever presented with any challenge day to day, however big or small, they're able to make a better decision now because they're informed and they deeply understand that culture. That's another form of that. That's like it's very similar to tech debt in that way, actually, in, in tools. And so, I'm wondering why do you think people don't get this? Like, what what do you think the gap is there? Because it really seems like people don't get this. And it, I find it staggering sometimes.
0: Part of it, I think, is, stems from a detachment of leadership from what it's actually like in the trenches, where if I'm not the one actually clicking the buttons and making sure everything works, I don't realize just how all-consuming those sorts of activities can be. Like, humans are not good at repetitive uh, behavior. It's just they're actually really bad at it. Um, and the more bored we get, the worse we perform. And so one thing that I would add to what what we've been talking about is even if you don't save time by building a tool, if that tool makes people happier and makes a process less full of friction, even if it comes out like even or even a little bit behind, the overall morale of the team can be higher and you'll get other less tangible benefits of like, people are a little bit more excited to come into work because they don't have to fight with the system that was not quite serving them well enough. And so it's not just like, sometimes people don't look at the metrics deeply enough. It's like, well, if this doesn't save us time, we're not going to build it. It's like, well, does it reduce the mental overhead of performing that task? That tool can be worth it. Um, and so there, I think there's, there's a lot more value than just like hours spent building
2: the tool versus hours saved. Mm-hmm. I think there's also, there's a time horizon If I look historically at game development, your time horizon, if you go back, you know, 15 years was, I have some amount of time, months to years to put together a box product. Once it's out, that's it. Mm. It's out, it's gone. And the idea of compounding interest is less valuable. If I have a total of an eight month development cycle, let's say, um, or a year and a half, we're gonna have a year and a half to get this thing out the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it takes us six months to build the tools, and I only get 12 months of value out of them, is that really worth it versus me just hiring the extra folks and sort of brute forcing the problem? Because, hey, we're only going to be here 18 months, yeah. and then the game's going to ship, and you know, maybe we'll start another one. And if I contrast that with where games are going, and you see all the majority of highly successful games moving towards games as a service model, even things that still resemble boxed product they take a lot uh, longer now. They, they take a lot yeah. longer to build, and they take longer, and if you're, like, Elden Ring, that's still being patched. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, so there's still, you know, maybe it's a skeleton crew, or maybe they're working on expansions, or whatever they're doing, all of the above, right? They're still working on that, and you didn't used to see that back, you know, some amount of time ago. And so I think, I think there's also, like, there's a shift in the industry, but if you're not paying attention to that shift, then, well, why improve the tools? right? We're a startup. We're just trying to get our game out. Like we have a game, we want to ship it. And I think that also speaks to, like how you said it, the the engineering things linked to the cultural things, because you didn't tell me when we, when you were talking about starting a studio, this is my cool game idea. You said, this is the change I want to see in the industry. And there, I see opportunities in engineering and I see opportunities in culture. Those are the things I want to iterate on. But what the game is actually is something we that it sounds like you believe will emerge from that being good instead of the other way around. Yeah. And
0: that's that's something that actually took me a little bit to settle on because I've seen so many other studios get launched on the premise of this is the game I've always wanted to make. Yeah. That yeah. is the core pitch of a lot of studios and then they hire people around that idea and then hope that they're successful. I took a bit of an inverse approach to starting the studio where I decided on the the impact I wanted to have on the industry first and realized a studio, a new studio was the best place to do that. And then after I decided what I wanted to accomplish, we then took stock of our own skill set and said, what are we best at building and what are we most likely to succeed if we build the rest of the team around us? We were saying, well. What genre most benefits from very strong backend engineers? And so then we were like, we're going to be an online multiplayer uh, game, and then we expanded from that to go into it's like, well, where's an opportunity in the market that matches our skill set? And we identified that look, well, here's a bunch of games that are initially very very successful, and then they tail off, and then hopefully they made enough um, enough money in their initial launch. It's like, what if we can solve the problem of content development and make it so that these online PVE multiplayer games can sustain content delivery much like PVP games do. Or like My theory and the thesis of the studio is that if we build better tools with better processes and a better environment, we can supercharge the creative output of the studio and keep up with player demand. And exactly to your point earlier, that is where the industry is going. The big successful games are games as a service. And it further justifies the other thesis that better tools make better games because it amortizes over a much longer life cycle.
2: So I wanna, I wanna actually dive into the individual's risk budget. What does that mean? Like what are you, what are you talking about when you say that?
0: Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a framework for thinking that helps guide my role as a leader at the studio. Everything that you do that incurs some level of risk from big things to little things takes some amount of energy and after a while, You'll then imagine you've got a meter, you like fill up that meter of all these little risks that you're taking, some big, some little. And when you hit the top, the next time you're presented with two options, one is risky and one is not, almost invariably you're going to take the non-risky option. Because you've spent your risk budget, you're just like, I just, I don't want this to be hard. And everybody's gotten to that point where it's like, I've made a ton of difficult decisions today and I just don't want to make decisions anymore. Or I've like, I've been going through a lot in my personal life, I just can't take risks at work anymore. Mm -hmm and the important thing about the risk budget is to recognize that it's universal it's not like i have a work risk budget budget and a personal risk budget it's actually one meter and wherever there's instability across your life it's going to add to that meter and when you're out you're out and everybody has a differently sized risk meter like some people are a lot more comfortable with risk and they'll take big risks all the time because They've been given a really safe environment to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have a very small risk budget because they've been burned a bunch of times in the past and they, like, they're like they like, oh man, like every risk that might be small for somebody else is actually really big for me and it fills my meter really fast. Mm-hmm. All that is to say, with that as a framework, that means that my job as the leader of this company is to control as many of the things that would fill that risk meter as possible. So I'll give you a very concrete example from game development. If I need to create a new piece of content for the game, it's a risk to build something that doesn't exist. And then it's another risk to then go and share that thing that you've built with somebody else and say, tell me what you think about it, because it's nearly impossible to fully detach yourself from the things that you built. And putting something you've built in front of somebody else is sort of putting yourself in front of somebody else. The level of both of those risks is actually influenced by the environment that the studio leaders and the other people at the company have created. If when I go to put something in front of somebody else and like put myself out there and say, I've created this, what do you think of it? If I can trust you to give criticism on the thing that I've created and not critique me as a, as a person and my own personal value, then it's a much lower risk for me to put it in front of you by Setting a culture where it's safe to try new things and it's safe to put things out for feedback, the number of times you can iterate before your risk budget is topped out is dramatically higher. We can get through more iterations and more iterations means we have more likelihood that we'll discover enough of those good ideas that then comprise
2: a completely released game. Yeah. There's a couple things that jump to mind for me there. And one is, that is a fundamentally different approach. When you view your role as CEO, recognizing that everybody has a cap on their risk budget mm-hmm. that if i can just make their decisions at work small take up less and less of that cap that is good yeah. like that, and that's that's a key part of my job is to make it easier for people to take risks i think a lot of companies without articulating it in the same way they optimize for trying to just hire people who have giant risk budgets mm. And so they're like, well if I just have people who have giant risk budgets then regardless of the environment and regardless of this, like they're willing to step out and take the risk. So that was something that that was one thing that came to mind. And I think actually Riot where we all worked, they actually optimized for that. They were like, we try to hire people who have, are willing to take risks and challenge things and do all, like do risky things. That in a lot of companies would be considered very foolish. This yeah.
1: is why you couldn't tell anyone to do anything. That, yeah, you couldn't tell, yeah, exactly. Because everyone's risk budget was massive. And so they were just like, I'm just going to say no. And you're like, <laughs> sure. at a normal company, you would get fired for that. And you're just yeah. like, nope, not doing that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the second thing I thought about was actually, uh, I think it's Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, where he, he talks about like, when you engage the prefrontal cortex, it's a very expensive thing. And when we're engaging with risky behavior, what we're actually doing, we have to like think through what's going to happen. And we engage like a lot of very high cognitive load, like it's actually exhausting and calorie burning to turn on those systems in our brain and then have them like we basically run scenarios forward to try to understand, well, is this risk worth taking or not? Or is this going to end badly for me? And instead... When we run out of our ability to do that, which is, as you said, happens to everybody, is across all avenues of life, all spectra of life, we will opt instead to fall back on the lower functioning parts yeah. of the brain and just like, I'm just running patterns now. I'm like, yeah. I, there are habits and behaviors that I know, and I've done them a million times. I'm just going to do that instead. Yeah, so I, I like what you're saying where it's like, I, I I don't want you to have to worry so much. I don't want it to be so... Like intellectually engaged with just figuring out if it's worth it for you to try. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's one thing that came up for me too, which is you know you've already brought forth a couple concepts today, Josiah, that are I would say are counterintuitive. Hmm. And and the and the ones the the counterintuitive concepts are always the most fascinating and interesting to me because as I do this more, I, I realize more and more that counterintuitive is an attractive thing. Because a lot of times our instincts don't necessarily lead us to the outcomes we want. And I think that that's doubly true in, in this kind of an environment where we're talking about, where like, this is crazy stuff we're doing, building computers and technology. This stuff didn't even exist 40 years ago. So it makes sense to me rationally why a lot of counterintuitive systems and solutions would be the right ones to pursue and an example here that I was thinking about when you were talking about risk budget is the kind of incentives that leaders facilitate and set up on a day-to-day basis as they're observing behaviors. Back to your content example, I can imagine a scenario where it's like, hey, we have this content that we make that we know is going to sell. And it's like, we've got it. It's very even keeled. You know what I mean? Like we produce five of them a month or whatever. And so it's going to be very natural for the incentive to be whoever that creates the most of that content is seen as a superstar at this studio. And the people who are coming up with new ideas yeah. are the detractors. Like, why can't you just crank out more skins like these other guys or whatever? Right. You know, and it's, it's so fascinating to imagine yourself as a line leader in that situation because you'd have to do the counterintuitive cultural thing and be like, hey, it's great that we found a thing that works. It's great that people buy it. And yes, to a degree, we have to honor the fact that our studio is funded on those ideas. But guess what? We're never going to be the studio we want to be if we don't have people stepping outside of that. And so we actually have to create what might feel like an artificial reward structure for that and basically celebrate people doing that so that we can get more of it because that's the only way we're going to open up new threads for monetization or new great ideas in the future. And you can really set out to build a risk budget aware senior leadership team. But every line leader at the company is going to have to be like working on the right incentives day to day. And, and a lot of them are going to be weird and feel weird. Like we just had a meeting where we got 20 pitches and they were all crap. <laughs> mm. And we have to celebrate that now. We have to be happy about that now. Otherwise, the system doesn't work.
0: Yeah. And one of the Things that I like about coming up with frameworks for thinking sort of like this is I really enjoy the moment where it makes past experiences make sense. Mm -hmm. Like there was there's a number of stories, some of which are very famous, of instances where like somebody's going through something very difficult at home and their manager notices that their productivity has slipped and like they're not hitting their deadlines or something, their quality has gone down. And the manager comes by and says, well, what's going on? And they say, oh, well, like my kid is sick and I'm just distracted by it. I can't focus at work. Or like I'm going through a divorce or my dog has died or like whatever it is, like normal life things that happen outside of work. And then the manager's response is, just take a few days off, tell me when you're ready. You can either come into work if you need the distraction or you can go home and just be out of work, whatever makes sense for you. Let me know when you're ready to get back to to working. And the response is usually, I can't believe my manager cares so much about me because I'm not producing anything for the company anymore. Like they've taken my OKRs away and said, it's my my job right now is to get better. And what an amazing experience that is. And I personally have had that experience. Like I was going through some difficult time at work. At work. This was, I was at Riot at the time. And my manager at the time was one of the best managers I've ever had, Andre Benamou. He came to me and said, like, you don't need to come into work for the next two weeks. And I was like, how am I going to get my stuff done? He's like, you've got no stuff. Like, you can work on stuff if you're interested, but your job is to, to settle things and come back when you're ready. And he recognized that in maybe different terminology, he recognized my risk budget was tapped out and I just wasn't producing. And he knew that the fastest way to get me back to being productive was to settle whatever was causing that. And I wasn't gonna be able to settle that if I was at work. And I never had a framework that explained why that was the correct action for the manager. Because managers are for performance management and making sure we're producing the right things and enough things and at a high enough quality level. And realizing that this risk budget framework of thinking, actually means sending that person home and telling them to settle their personal life is directly in line with the overall goal that they have as a manager in performance
2: management. I remember working with a VFX artist during a pretty large project, and I never, I never ever bothered him about this, but there were days where he would, we didn't have the best VFX tools on this project, and he would just hit a place sometimes where he was like, I have to go home now. I am, I am just, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he was, so, he was so good. He was such a good VFX artist, but he would just fry. And it was, you know, maybe like 2 in the afternoon or something like that. And never came a hard time because I know that, like, when you're in here and you're willing to, you know, fight the tools and, get, like, make this work and whatever, you do a phenomenal work. But I also recognize that when you cap it probably means you're really really capped and trying to be like, well, I mean, do you really have to leave? Couldn't you just get another couple? But it's like, no, you've recognized you're out. You're out of creative potential. The risk budget is gone. You can't fight the system anymore. And so the best thing for you to do is to walk away. Yeah, and I think the
0: the next step is like what are the actions that you take when either you or somebody else you've noticed is is tapped out? And on two sides, where it's like, what do you do when they're, they've gone too far and they're tapped out? But also just how do you maintain people's levels and make sure they never get to that point? Yeah. And so one of the first things that we did at Sprocket, even before we hired any employees, it was just the founders, is we were very intentional about defining specific ways we ensured people could disconnect when they're not working. Because much like in like athletics and sports, Um, recovery is part of training. Mm -hmm. Disconnecting from work is part of productivity. Mm -hmm. And by expecting people to work more hours than all the scientific research says is reasonable, like some of it says 40 hours, some even say as low as like 35 or 32 hours is about as much as you can get done in a week. Um, If you don't respect the time outside of those hours as part of the overall productivity of the person and you say well just a few more hours to get this done or like respond to my slack messages after after 8 p.m because I need to know this thing anytime you interrupt that recovery process you make them come into the next day without having recovered as much of their risk budget as they could have and then now they've got less to operate with and if you create an environment where everybody's working 10 12 hours everybody's going to be operating with less budget and that's because creativity is a higher order function, it's not something that we need to survive. It's one of the first things that shuts off when we get stressed. Yeah, We're directly interfering with our ability to make new and innovative things.
1: There's an elephant in the room in our industry. You called this out, Josiah, and I really want to talk about this more. You called it the myth of the dream job. And as you were describing it to me, like, I was like cringing almost because it's so real. There's the fact that you found that the best way to have an impact was to create your own studio from scratch. So I want to ask you, when you talk about the myth of the dream job and game development, what are you referring to and what are the consequences of that that you see?
0: Yeah, so to just state the problem, the games industry is largely a passion-driven industry where uh, people grow up playing video games and they love video games. And so... For a lot of people, they work really hard to learn the skills that they need to learn. They'll moonlight on projects. They'll, they'll build up their portfolio for no pay. People work really hard to finally get their dream job. And for a lot of people, when they finally show up, like maybe the offices are beautiful and there's statues of their favorite characters, it's actually a really difficult place to be. And the reasons for that difficulty are widely varied. But I mean, we've all read the articles that have come out about like, Different studios have had, like, harassment and discrimination problems and people who are highly capable in their respective professions are not getting the promotions that they deserve or they're not getting the opportunities to, to execute in ways that they can. Or maybe due to publisher deadlines or things they can't control, they have to work these long crunch hours to, to hit the deadlines. And then the game comes out for reasons they can't control and then they're disappointed they didn't get a few more weeks to work on it. Like, there's, there's a lot of things... That make the working in the industry really tough, but because it's a dream job, it's compounded by one extra layer, and that is people fought so hard to get there, they're less inclined to speak up than they otherwise would be, mm. because they know that it's really competitive to get many of these jobs, and they know there's probably a thousand other people who are more than happy to take that position from them, and in the worst cases, their manager reminds them of that regularly: of you'd better get this out because, like, I mean, you wouldn't want to lose your job. And so you end up with this self-defeating cycle of people who have gotten their dream job. It's a really tough environment, but, well, this is what I signed up for. I'm just going to put up with all of this and hope maybe it'll get better. But they're, they're not always given the power to make those changes, and they don't want to rock the boat and lose their dream job.
2: Oh, man. I like how you framed that, even though I don't like that it's true, and that you captured the other side of it, I think. Because I got my dream job, I, I feel like I have to put up with this. And so if I was in a different environment, maybe I would lobby for change or say, this is unacceptable. I'm watching people psychologically break down and have to leave and be viewed as failures when that happens. You know, it's like, oh, well, they just couldn't cut it in games. You could always say, well, there's no such thing as a dream job, really.
1: I think there's also a key aspect to this, too, which is that the belief that people have that it is, that it is and it is going to be that and that they hope that it is going to be that is actually, sadly, one of the things that opens the door for lower quality leadership and lower quality products and lower quality management and all these things. And I think that's the part that I that just sinks my heart, actually, is the fact that Isn't it, what a wonderful thing for people to be so excited to go do something to the point where they'd be willing to, at great personal sacrifice, pursue that dream. Well, like, I think we've mostly covered our big topics, but I do want to ask you kind of two more questions and one will dovetail into the other. What do you think we need to be doing as leaders? What do you think needs to happen for us to address some of these issues? What do you want to see leaders doing?
0: I mean, part of it is listening to conversations like this one and, and getting an appreciation for the value that is the ultimate end result of doing this better. Because um, a lot of this is like, well, I would really love to treat my people better, but I don't have the time or the budget to do it. Like, we've got to hit this deadline and there's the, I don't have any other choice. Recognizing that to be competitive in games now, you are building long-term projects, and you, are, you do need to think about the five to 10-year horizon. And this is an endurance event, it's not a sprint, to use a cliche phrase. Realizing that early investment in stable foundations amortize over a much longer time period, it becomes easier to justify the expense from even just like a bottom line perspective. And so if you understand the value and then you realize the time horizon is much longer than they used to be, then it makes sense. And isn't it wonderful that it goes through treating your game developers better? We have to be successful for people to pay attention to us. And that's a tall order. Like a small nine person studio isn't on very many people's radars. And so right now what we're focusing on is scaling up and releasing a game and being successful so that people look and say, how do we make good games? Sprocket makes good games. What do they do? Oh, wow. They have a really great environment where creativity flourishes. What if we did that too?
1: Mm -hmm. Awesome. So on that note, what's next for you?
0: Yeah, so we've secured our seed round of funding, and all eyes are on the next round of funding that we need to raise in about 12 months. Well, 12 months from inception, which means uh, next summer we'll be raising Series A, and hopefully Series A will be enough money to get us to launch. And then everybody will get to play our game, which I'm super excited about. So yeah, we're deep into prototype building land, and we've been extremely successful at hiring. The people that have joined the studio are all incredible. and. I like to think that that's because of the environment that we've created. People look at that and say, I want to be a part of that. And so, like, so far, we have 100% offer acceptance rate, which is pretty amazing. Wow. And so what's next is now that we've got the core team in place, we built. And we built for a while. And then when we raise Series A, um, probably around June or July of next year, we're probably going to triple or quadruple the size of the studio. And at that point, we will have we will have to be hiring a lot of people. And so that's us for the next year.
1: Awesome. So to wrap things up, we want to talk about four takeaways from this podcast. The first one is to actively manage the risk budget of your studio teams and individuals. And through that harness maximum creativity. The second is the myth of the dream job and how we as leaders can start to change this in our industry, understanding the impacts of that, what people are hoping for as they come in and how to treat them well, and to again, accelerate those good outcomes. The third thing is the value of tools in accelerating creativity and the compounding value that they have over time. Don't underestimate the value of doing something early because you're going to continue to reap gains for years to come. And number four, the power of getting people aligned on your vision and how you want to change the world. This one is such an inspiring thought, which is the idea that if you really get people aligned with what you believe is true about the world, you can create a compelling vision and a compelling sale at the same time. And that's really cool.
2: Awesome. Josiah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, for sure. This has been a really cool conversation. We I've enjoyed it a lot. So yeah, thank you. And, and until next time.
0: Yeah, there's, there's so many more things we could talk about. I hope we do it again.
2: thanks for listening. We hope this episode helps you create better games faster. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment right now to rate or review us wherever you're listening. Your support helps us bring you more content. Appreciate you tuning in for Building Better Games.